So when was the last time that you talked to God, right? When was the last time you talked to God? This is a question that you can ask in church as a pastor. You generally don't want to be asked this question on a witness stand or in a police station. When was the last time you talked to God, okay? We're not, we're not, we're not saying the audible, like booming voice of God in your world, but we are saying, when was the last time that you talked to God? And I believe that if my hunch is correct, as a part of like the church world, that we've kind of sanitized that idea of talking to God and we've turned it into more spiritually dignifying words like communion with God or, you know, when did I last? Even using the word prayer kind of, kind of sets us one, one piece removed from the idea of talking to God. And maybe we do that because we want to be theologically precise, but maybe we also do that because to say, when was the last time I prayed is to be a little less personal when was the last time I was in communion with God? When was the last time I went to church? Is a little less personal. To say prayer is to, is to refer to one-way communication and it's low risk, you know, I, I prayed. It's hoping or, you know, maybe flipping a coin. It doesn't cost you much to say God bless you after someone sneezes. But when was the last time you talked to God? So I find that increasingly I need to be trained in that kind of communication that the scriptures know that. I find that uh, I need to, to talk to God, to communicate with God in a kind of all in for hope sort of way. I need to pull on the tiger's tail a little bit and hope that I don't get swallowed, right? I need to actively engage in hope. It's risky talking to God in the idea that you are speaking to the king of the universe, that he is present in and through and around us even today. We need to train and retrain ourselves what it means to talk to God. This is what we learn as we look at Galatians. This is part of Paul's uh, desire is frustration for the people. You know, one of the most, speaking of frustration, one of the most frustrating gifts uh, we ever gave our daughters was a set of walkie-talkies. Now, don't do this when they're really young, right? Maybe it was a gift from a relative because they, they love to give your kids gifts that aren't age-appropriate and will drive you crazy. But we went, uh, what they did is they went to different parts of the house and they tried to use them. But here's the problem. Because to use walkie-talkies requires that one person on one side presses the talk button while the other person doesn't press the talk button, all right? And so, and so it, it requires synchronized intent on both the speaker and the receiver's part. And this is basically impossible to achieve with two young children. Basically impossible, all right? But in, and essentially what happened is we had two kids screaming at each other from other parts of the house to either talk or not talk, because they couldn't hear each other. It was so frustrating. It was driving me crazy. So in general, uh, in, in my most uh, passionately kind way, I, I remove the walkie-talkies until another time, like when they're 16 or 17, when then I might be able to use them. So in, in general, right, we are maybe less willing and less willing uh, to, to listen and talk than toddlers when it refers to our cosmic relationship with God. We are, we are toddlers in that regard. Thankfully, God knows that, that our communicating is not strong, that our, our, our understanding of what it means to talk with God may not be great because we do so kind of tentatively pressing the talk button, kind of tentatively listening. The book of Galatians insists this, that there's, there's a, a radical shift in the lives of Christians, and it means that they can't be what they were. They have to now be sons. That's the language that Galatians uses. You're sons. Remember we talked last week about the fact that both uh, men and women are called sons in a way that's incredibly dignifying. It's to say that there is a universal inheritance and a hope and a legality to your standing before Christ, whether you're man or woman. 
And so not only we are all sons, but now something else changes because he uses language here that's used actually in two other places in the New Testament. He says something that's a little bit stunning. It's also in Romans 8 as part of like that long grand story about what God is doing in the world. And he starts off and he says, he says at one point, he says, look, um, you have to receive from Christ a spirit of adoption. And, and we see it here, in, if you just kind of look at verse 6 again in, in Galatians 4. Because you are sons, it says here in Galatians, almost the same thing in Romans 8. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And if you were part of a youth group at any time in human history, you were probably told by a youth group leader that Abba means daddy, right? And, uh, and it, it is an intensely personal and relational term. I'm not the kind of guy because probably my own frailty that likes to pray, hey, daddy. Um, but there is intimacy in that relationship, okay? There is intimacy involved there. And this is where Paul's going. He says, you receive the spirit and it means that you cry out. If you're sons, you cry out to the father, not for theological precision, but for comfort, sustainable reassurance and survival. You have this relationship. You cry out. Not as a, you know, as a child, not as a professional Jesus worshiper, like we all are, right? God has given us a way to speak and a way to be heard. God calls us sons, so we must call him father. This is what, this is the point that Paul is making. This is spiritual formation, to call God father, to relate to him intimately. So right here in verse six, that's where we see it. Because your sons, God's given you the spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Not because you've been very good, but because you're a son. Not because you're moral, but because you're his. This is incredibly good news for those of us who, who kind of struggle with that interior life of following Jesus, okay? If you're a person who doesn't like to think about what that means inside and what's going on in my heart, our part is to respond in faith as, as sons by crying out, with the spirit that he's given us. God gives us a spirit to respond. Now that's, that's a big contrast from how the world tends to understand religion and Christianity in general. In general, the world around us would say, and maybe this is where your heart is too, whether you would say it, it's kind of how we operate, that competency looks like less crying out. Right? That intimacy with God and, and, and maturity in Christ comes from religious competence. But what Paul is giving us here is he's saying competence is crying out. Competence is crying out. So if you're a crier, it's okay. Competence, competence is crying out. The Orthodox Christian says, no, competence is a matter of God coming to me. I'm not competent. I am proof of the competence of God. So having received the spirit of adoption, we have to cry out to him. That's really the application of the text. Hey, you've, you've become sons, so cry like a son to God. So how do we do that? What does it mean? There's much we can say here. Broadly, it means that, that God has given us the ability to seek after him. This is something we might not grab. If you're in the book of Galatians, or I mean, the book of Romans, you see this more clearly. You know, you've got chapter after chapter telling us we can't seek God. Chapter after chapter telling us that we don't have the stuff internally. We don't, we don't have the... The, the 
the heart to do this. We don't have the, the will and determination to do that. And then suddenly you see in Romans 8, hey, now you've been given the spirit so you can cry out. So the great contrast is, wow, before I couldn't even seek after God and now I've been given the spirit that, that cries out like he's my dad. It's a pretty incredible statement. But not only that, it also means for those of you, again, who are terrified about talking about emotions or the interior life, I'm not going to call on you right now and tell me how much you love Jesus, okay? But think about for a second what's going on in your heart, okay? What does it mean? How do I do that? If you're feeling tension, oh man, I have to cry out to God. I don't don't know what's going on inside me. I, I struggle to say it to people. What we're seeing here is a kind of honesty. Honesty. The relationship between the son and the father is one of honesty. Crying out with honesty. It's not a game of cosmic battleship where you, you, know, you throw out the coordinates and you hope you hit something, right? There's honesty in that relationship. Honesty means relating as you truly are. No pretending, no marketing, no spin. That's the beauty of the grammar here in Galatians 4 if you're a grammar nerd. That the idea here is because you, and I'm a grammar nerd, so I can say that. Because you are sons, now speak. Because you are sons, now speak. You can say something because you belong to God. To cry out to God, is, it's like it's spiritual formation. It shapes us. You learn by doing it. So as an aside, notice that everything that happens in a worship service is kind of geared toward honesty. All right, think about that for a second. Like the word of God speaks truth and it welcomes sinners. So you can be honest about how sinful you are. The Lord's table, it it, it feeds sinners. Sinners are welcome. If you think you don't have any sin, then you don't need the Lord's Supper. The responsive reading, it kind of gives us honest words to say. The whole worship service is to help us with this dialogue, to use those words. So cry out in honesty. That's really what uh, Paul's giving us. Cry out like a son because you've received the spirit of adoption. I want to tell you how, okay? It's a few, few different ways real quickly. One is to cry out in honest anger. Now, you might think that's weird for me to tell you to cry out in anger before God. You might think that's strange. You're probably not going to hear that often in churches to tell you to be willing to get angry in your talking to God. You might not hear that. But the scriptures show us that crying out in anger is a good and righteous thing to do. As a matter of fact, in the Psalms alone, 23 times we are directly shown what it looks like to question God in an accusatory way. The psalmist says, why? Not in a, hey, I'm just kind of curious about this. You know, I'm not, really, I'm not too sure about this. Help me understand because I follow you all the time and I love you all the time and I never have questions. But a friend of mine who might have a question might ask this, right? This is not the attitude of the psalmist. The psalmist says, why? Let me, give you some, let me give you some examples. Psalm 10. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Imagine that accusation. Why do you hide yourself when I need you? Why do you act in this kind of cowardly fashion? Psalm 42. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? How about Psalm 74? Actually, wait, how about Psalm 44? First, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? That accusation is the same accusation that God's prophet makes about the false gods. They're sleeping. Here the psalmist says, God, why are you sleeping? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. 
The psalmist says in Psalm 74, oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? If you think it's wrong to speak with that kind of honesty toward God, consider that the Psalms are God's own hymn book. His people have for thousands of years used these very words in worship. They've used these words in worship. In other words, God puts those words in the mouth of his people. This isn't just suggestion. The pattern of worship for God's people was to take the psalm and to sing those words to each other. Imagine that. On their way up to Jerusalem, they'd sing the psalms of ascent. In confession, they'd sing psalms of penitence. In worship, they'd sing psalms where they would say things like, God, why? They use these words. God himself puts those words in the mouths of his people. Don't just say them, sing them. Why? (laughs) Because to be angry with God, to see the injustice, to see the stuff going on in you that you're just ticked off about, you're just done, is a necessary part in the process of seeing God's mercy and grace and love worked out. It's about learning who the father is. And just like a child who learns from a good, let's say a good earthly father, okay? When you get angry with them, a good earthly father will teach you something about who they are by the way in which they receive you, even in your anger. Where they correct you and tell you what's true. Where they never push you away and say you're not their child. This is how we learn who God is. It's the, these very things, the anger, the grief, the loss of the people of God. It's for those reasons that Jesus dies. To be angry with God is to be more intimately connected with the reasons why Jesus dies. The psalmist comes to God and the psalmist says, why? And the psalmist looks at the entirety of the truth and says, I know this is true but I don't always know this is true and I'm angry. I love uh, the way C.S. Lewis says this, says to turn God's wrath into mere enlightened disapproval. If you do that, you also turn his love into mere humanitarianism. I'll tell you what I think that means just a moment, but just think about this. If you're unwilling to be angry with God to express this honesty you're not going to understand to the same degree God's saving acts. Do you hear me? I know this sounds weird to say that you can express yourself that way emotionally before God. But if you are not willing to do that, then the cross doesn't make sense. It, It can't speak to you as deeply, viscerally, in the flesh, compellingly. You have to cry out to God, to the God who is on the cross. Without without real problems, without real brokenness, without real things that compel you to cry out in anger, there's no reason for Jesus to be on the cross. God welcomes that kind of honesty. It's faith because it's in the direction of God. That's why we sing. We can be honest toward God. We have to stop sanitizing the emotional God. We have to stop being emotionally dead before God. We have to cry out honestly because we've been given this spirit of adoption. 
because we're kids, we're his sons. Well, you cry out in honest anger, but you also cry out in honest need. Now, this we know is true, but I think we fight against this just as much as anything else. This is contrary to our most deeply held cultural beliefs, right? Let me put it this way. You can't receive a spirit of adoption from God if you refuse to need your father, okay? You can't receive a spirit of adoption as sons. You can't embrace that if you refuse to need God. It doesn't work. This relationship is impossible. Sons have to be sons. Sons need. Sons depend, right? It's completely, it is completely countercultural for us. In the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to say, give us this day what? Yeah, man, we're doing a better job at responding. This is great. I heard a couple of you, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread isn't presumptive or weak. It's asking to be related to God like a son. To your parents, it wouldn't be presumptive or weak or presumptive or weak to ask for that which brings you joy and rest. That wouldn't be presumptive. That wouldn't be weak. That'd be being a kid. The most subversive thing that a Christian can do, okay? The most countercultural thing. Man, I, I grew up in the age where we were taught as Christians, like, you need to be a freak as a Christian. Just weird and countercultural. You know the counterculture I wasn't taught was this. The most countercultural, the most subversive thing you can do is to say that everything is not okay. That I am not able to provide for myself. I have to say, give us this day. I mean, that is like the most punk thing you can do as a Christian is to say, punk in the positive way, right? In the cultural retro way is to say, I need something from God. It's anti-American, anti-suburban, anti-urban, anti-establishment. Give us this day because I cannot give myself what I need most. Give us this day because I cannot give myself what I need most. This has to be part of the honest dialogue we have between us and God, this honest need. But honest need, honest anger, fine. But what about honest grief? So, so what do we have to be sad about, right? How is sadness apart? How is, how is regret, how is remorse, how is repentance apart of this relationship? Well, grief, it's, it's, the, it's the proper response between when you look and you see the way that things should be and the way that they are, right? I'm a terrible artist. There, there are things in, like some of you have portions in your brain where you can draw a straightish line and you can connect the arms to a stick man and the legs. I can't do that. And I'm not exaggerating. I am bad. I stopped playing Pictionary because everybody asked me to play Pictionary. Do you know why they asked me to play Pictionary? Because they could laugh at me playing Pictionary, okay? I am bad at artwork. The, the idea behind what I conceive in my mind as this is what I want to draw and what I actually draw provokes me to humiliation and shame, all right? The, the teacher in third grade that, you, that put on the wall, no ashtrays in clay making, you know, in molding, whatever that class is called where you mold the clay, I don't know, sculpting. It, they put that on the wall, do not make ashtrays for me because that's all I could make, all right? The distance between what things should be and what they are should provoke us to grief. Not just in the world at large, you should be connected to that world enough to grieve for it, but also in your own life as you look and you say, something's not right. I should be provoked to grief 
and I should express that grief honestly. It is courageous to look at the world and your life with God's eyes and to see where it's broken and to confess it. That's, that's a part of it. If you're in the game of Christianity to be at a distance where you don't have to examine the internal life, I'm telling you, you will participate in a Christianity that is not the Christianity of the scriptures that way. It has to be intensely personal. It has to be intensely honest. Uh, in, in my, uh, well, I, I mean, I just put it this way, really, to grieve is to say through tears, thy kingdom come. To say through tears, thy kingdom come. I need your kingdom, Lord, not mine. In my research this week, I noticed uh, something that just stopped me in my tracks. Every once in a while as a pastor, you, you see something in your study and you're like, oh, I should have known this a long time ago, but here it is. One difference between the God of the scriptures, the Christian God, and every other God is this. I mean, every other God, every other world religion God. There's one remarkable difference. Only the God of Christianity weeps. Only the God of Christianity weeps. The God of Islam is too beautiful. Allah is too beautiful to weep. Read the Quran. It's there. You cannot weep. In Hinduism, in Taoism, in the gods that we create, these gods are what we call ineffable. You cannot touch them. They are beyond the barrier. They cannot grieve because they cannot be affected in the same way that we can. Only the God of Christianity weeps. You know, the, the verse you always learn, John eleven thirty five, 35, when you had scripture memory, you know, and they said, hey, memorize some scriptures. You knew you could get one, which was Jesus wept. And you knew that there are 47 passages in Exodus that said, but the Lord said to Moses. And you just keep saying those, right? Those are the scripture verses that you knew. Jesus wept. I'm just pouring out my life here to you, okay? Just pouring out my life. Jesus wept. Jesus cries out for Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I wish I could gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks cries out for Lazarus. Lazarus. He weeps. This God weeps. It's amazing. How can we trust? What, what kind of God can you trust? You, you can't trust him unless he weeps for you too. This is the Christian God, the God who weeps. So what happens when a church learns that they can talk to God honestly, when they can be honest in their anger, their need, their grief? What happens? What do they do differently? Well, they speak, with, they speak for people without a voice, for one. They speak for friends who don't know Jesus. They speak to God on the behalf of people who are broken and weary, for people who can't form the words, you know? That's what the Christian church does. They speak for people without a voice. They not only do that, they speak for the broken and the poor and the stranger that they need to bring into their lives. They speak uh, about the future that God is bringing to bear in the world. And if they've received this spirit of adoption, they cry out and they have a unique ability to function in this world. They don't belong to the culture anymore. They're adopted by God. They're individuals who can speak to a world without fear. They don't have their voice taken away because they know who they are in Christ. They know they're a son. That's what it means to be adopted by God, that kind of confidence. Paul is getting that across to the Galatians. You cannot be Jew or Greek, male or female. You must be God's own son or daughter first. Here's some brief application for you too. 
So, you know, if you speak honestly, let me encourage you also, as it's always dangerous to say, but look, let me encourage you to speak early, to talk with God early, to, to invest in hours in your day that are unstructured. And by that, I mean, for most people, it's the hours when you first wake up. This is just by way of application. This is not the Lord. This is James, okay? Here's what I've found. I've found that the room for that kind of honesty has to happen before anything else has really happened in my day. It's just tough. If I, if I try to do this at night or I try to do this at different... Some of you are like spiritual heroes and you can pray whenever and it's not a problem. You know what? I'm a pastor. I'm not a spiritual hero in that regard. I may start praying about something and then get distracted. You know, that's me. Try, try it. Invest in morning hours before your day gets structured, before you run off into the world and it makes you into whoever it wants to make you. Start in prayer. Start, you know, you can grab in, in the bulletin here. We've actually got like a reading schedule. If you're bad at that, like just, just read the scripture. We've got a passage that you can kind of dwell on a little bit that you can meditate on and think about and meet the Lord and be honest. That's all I'd say. Just seek that. So when was the last time you talked to God, right? That was the question. When was the last time you talked to God? Let me just say this, that from here on in, you should know this if you don't know it already. When you speak to God, you are not the first one to speak. This is the greatest encouragement we have in the passage. God works first. He speaks first. He always has the first word. Did you know that? He always speaks first. He spoke first in creation. If you're a person that didn't grow up in the church and you're thinking like, how is this? How does this work in the scriptures? The Bible is clear about God speaking creation into being. Sure, using the mechanisms of the world, he spoke those into being. He made you in the stuff of your life. He made you physically. He made your, your ears, your eyes. He made your heart that sometimes has faith and sometimes doesn't. He spoke it into being. He spoke first. He spoke first when he said, Abram, the promise is for you, right? Even before you were born, for you and for your children after you. He spoke first in that world. He cried out first for his people. God has filled the air before you speak with kindness and mercy and redemption so that you can speak. He has made you sons so you can call him father.